Flygate Broadcasting. everybody renegade audience great to hear from y'all again i should say good morning and good afternoon to those folks scattered around the world listening in on the internet this is renegade broadcasting august 25th 2018 and today is supposed to be your roundtable show but i took it over because i'm doing something here and it's important and we talk about it a lot and I want to tell you, uh, I want to go over it. I'll get into that a little bit later about the point of tonight's show. First, I want to say welcome to the big show. This is Renegade Broadcasting. And be sure to tune into most of our other awesome shows. We have shows six days a week. We've got Kyle doing the big show on Sunday nights. Great show on Monday from Rich. Great show on Wednesday and Thursday where we have Charles doing his thing. HV was on last night. He's on every Friday. He does a great show. And Saturdays, which is today, is usually uh, call-in night, um, have some fun, voice your feelings and things of that short, sh- um, things of that sort. Shows start at 8 p.m. Eastern time, two hours long. Also... Renegade Broadcasting has Renegade Tribune. It's a great news source. You guys should all check that thing out. If you don't use it, you should start doing it. If you have a subject of interest, you can search for it. You will probably find stuff over there already. RenegadeTribune.com. On the front page today, I see cool articles about the genocidal plan of Thomas Jefferson, something about Fitbits, one of the creepiest pieces of technology out there in the market today, something about Facebook and beheading people, which seems um, seems extraordinarily creepy. Be sure to check out both Renegade Tribune, Renegade Broadcasting, and Renegade Vids. There's a bunch of stuff over there, too. I'm going to take a quick look at Renegade Vids and tell you folks what's up there. They've put out some stuff fairly recently. I'm not going to do that. It's going to take too long. Be sure to check out renegadevids.com. It's a good one, too. So tonight, oh, yeah, I wanted to tell you that. You can see this over on Renegade Tribune. If you go look, one of the articles posted today 
is some of Sinead's new music. She's out there working. Um, Kyle's always working. There's a lot of us trying to do things. And anyway, this particular new piece of music is pretty cool. It's like uh, the first one was put out, I don't know, a, a week or two ago. It was a very folksy style. It had guitars. It had mandolins. There was a, awesome singing, harmonies. The one that now is very much more modern and very interesting. So go check out Sinead's new piece of music. You'll find it over on the front page of Renegade Tribune. There's a couple of other uh, contributors I wanted to mention. Uh, Sencha McRae, she just keeps putting out YouTubes. I don't know where she's finding her spare time. But she's, in fact, uh, her putting out YouTubes and Charlie has uh, inspired me to, to get a go at this because she's reading a book and making videos about these subjects. I figured, all right, I'm going to read a book on a complicated subject. I'm going to go on Renegade, and I'm going to tell you guys all about it. What I'm going to talk about tonight is the Federal Reserve because we talk about it a lot. Uh, I knew I didn't know enough about it, and I still don't. Um, we're going to get into that in great detail here tonight. Uh, I'll give you the actual layout of what we're going to get through. There's a lot of material. We're getting through a fraction of it tonight. I also want to encourage you to go to Renegade Broadcasting, uh, make some donations. Don't be afraid to make some donations. You're not going to be put on the, um, the death list of the feds if you do so. It's tremendously appreciated. Folks need support. Um, if you are uncertain about who to donate to, go to the USS Liberty website. They've got a donate button. They've got a movie they're making. It's really going to be great if they can ever get this thing completed and finished. They've been working on it for quite some time. It's called USSLibertyMovie.com. It's not a fancy website. It's there to support their project. There's a donate button there. Go check it out. One of the things that is great about the USS Liberty story is it's actually one that's safe and interesting for common discussion with normal people who are not as far from the norm as the audience of this particular show is. You can talk about it because it is modern events. It is recent history. It's the time period when I was alive and my dad was paying attention to politics at the time. And yet the people who were around and have paid attention to news, they still didn't hear anything about this. They'll be amazed to hear that. What? A ship of ours was sunk during the 70s, a battleship or whatever. It wasn't really a battleship. Not only was it sunk, but it was sunk by a very duplicitous effort, and it was sunk by Israel. It's an amazing story. So learn a little bit about the U.S. Liberty. Buy some USS Liberty T-shirts. Check out the movie and support their project over there. Okay, moving on. I'm going to introduce a new word today. I haven't heard it anywhere before. Um, it's kind of what I see it as a theme for what's happening in much of the world today. I got it out of Manifesto for the Abolition of Enslavement to Interest on Money. It's a great old document used by, I think it was the name was Fetter, some economist dude from the uh, World War II era that... Um, the National Socialists were very interested in. That book's very interesting. He had a definition for a word called mammonism. 
I found that mammonism is a word. Nobody knows what that means. It's just too weird. So I got a new word. Look at this suffix, this medical word called osis, like halitosis. The medical definition is o- of osis is a suffix meaning a process, condition, or state, usually abnormal or diseased, production or increase, physiologic or pathologic, an invasion or an infestation. That's what osis means. I believe a great word to describe the situation the world is in right now is an advanced state of Judeosis. That's my new word, Judeosis. Put it to work, you guys. Here's the definition of Judeosis. The heavy, all-encompassing, and overwhelming sickness from which our contemporary cultural sphere and indeed all mankind suffers It is like a devastating illness, like a devouring poison that has gripped the peoples of this world. So that whole definition I swiped from the book, that's his definition of mammonism. I like Judaeosis a lot better. I'm going to go into the subject of today. Of course, it relates to Judaeosis because this is about the Federal Reserve. And it's not clear what the connections are to Judaeosis, but I'm going to try to reveal some of them. In particular today, and likely several shows, I'm going to be talking about The Secrets of the Federal Reserve. It's a book by Eustace Mullins. Eustace is, uh, I'll tell you a bit about Eustace a little bit later. This book is uh, copyrighted 1991. That's got to be like a new new rewrite. It's, it's It's a bit older than that, but it's a great book. He's written a large number, and I'll tell you more about him a little bit later. This book is a uh, very well-documented footnotes like crazy about everything. You can be very well-educated and know that you're not being led astray when you read this stuff. It's not coming off of links on web pages. This is coming out of stuff from the Library of Congress, and I'll tell you more about that later. My aim is to do this entire book. I'm not going to just sit here and read the whole book to you. That would be horrible. But as I was reading this book, I was realizing there are chunks which are really particularly important and would be of interest to this crowd. And I thought I had I knew enough about the Fed to be able to badmouth it. But there's, some of this is really particularly interesting. So I wanted to bring it to light here today. So today, all I'm going to get through is a background about money, because that's the root of this, the uh, Federal Reserve and their control. Going to talk a bit about barter, a bit about money, a bit about loans, and a bit about the gold standard. I'm doing these four things because I realized I didn't know these four things as well as I should in order to understand the problem. And then we're finally going to get around to the book. We're probably going to get through the foreword of the book and the introduction of the book. And that's like as far as we're going to get in this show. As well as when I talked about background, I'm actually going to tell you a little bit about Eustace Mullins and um, Ezra Pound, who is involved in this story. Plenty of time left. So beginning with the meat of the show here, I'm doing the background I will start with barter. And as I mentioned a little bit for a little bit earlier, if you want to 
learn something about barter, it's actually kind of useful to head over to Renegade Tribune and, and search for barter. You're going to find some cool stuff. However, I went to Wikipedia. I have something to say about that later. Boy, has that degenerated. They have a page over there about barter. And if you go to the talk page, you'll find something interesting. Maybe you guys don't know, but if you go to Wikipedia, every page that's full of content has an associated discussion page. I think you'll find most of those are really quite interesting. But the talk page for barter has some interesting things to say. Relations between money and barter. Here are some quotes from the discussion page for barter on Wikipedia. This is Leon Tolstoy. He's the guy who wrote was it War and Peace. He was a, a Russian author, and I can't remember which one he wrote off the top of my head. Uh, here's a quote. Money is a new form of slavery and indistinguishable from the old. No, not indistinguishable. Money is a new form of slavery, and it is distinguishable from the old simply by the fact that it is impersonal, that there is no human relation between master and slave. Interesting quote by Tolstoy. He had these um, Tolstoy colonies he used to run for his ideal situation. I bet you there's a great show waiting to be done on that guy. Here's a quote from Meyer Amschel Rothschild. You all know this quote already, but now there's a name here, Meyer Amschel Rothschild. Let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who makes its laws. Here is a, here's a slightly longer quote. I believe this one is from Adam Smith. You can figure out why... Oh, it's not. This is just in discussion. So here's a little brief discussion followed by an Adam Smith quote. You can figure out why most economic experts are not seriously interested by this matter and also why contributions are accepted only if they describe barter as the outdated ancestor of money or if the subject discussed is from an economic quantitative point of view. See, these guys are discussing in the talk page why don't people want to put certain things on the barter page. The money power preys on the nation in time of peace and conspires against it in time of adversity. It is more despotic than monarchy and more insolent than autocracy, more selfish than bureaucracy. It denotes as public enemies all who question its methods or throw light upon its crimes. That what I just read, that's a quote by Abraham Lincoln. i got to delineate these quotes before I start them. Here's a discussion paragraph. This article is now a no man's land of economy. Its quality will grow only if contributions are understood and really discussed before being deleted or it will remain as it is now. Adam Smith saw government as having a fundamental role in ensuring that markets were not rigged to favor the merchant which is what I believe much of the role of government should be. If there is a role of government, it should be that uh, one of its roles should be making sure the markets are fair. And another striking example for tonight is issuing of currency, but we will get to that. Here is a quote from Adam Smith. The interest of businessmen is always in some respects different from and even opposite to that of the public. 
the proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce which comes from this order ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined. With most suspicious attention, it comes from an order of men who have generally an interest to deceive and even oppress the public. This is Adam Smith, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Barter is not an ancestor outdated or otherwise of money, as some guy is arguing. The definition, uh, um, if you like the channels, you like the discussion channels because there's some cursing going on in here too. So anyway, a little bit about barter there. Here are, um, you can check that out online. and It is an interesting subject. Here is some other interesting stuff, which is more modern because the invention of the internet and e-commerce and having phones in your pocket all the time hooked up to your wallet have produced some new possibilities for barter, which is still evolving, probably being resisted fiercely by people who want a, a monetary system. There's a project out there called Open Barter. It's in there in GitHub. So you can go out there and you can get the code and you can start working on this stuff. There's another one called Barter Project, barterproject.org. So you can go to GitHub and search for Open Barter. You can go to barterproject.org. Some of you guys in the chat, maybe there's there was a lot of stuff out there. Um, maybe you find some of your favorites, you can post them. And uh, Elena, you used to post a lot of cool stuff in the chat room. I hope you're still out there and get back in the chat room. And I hope you're doing well. So that was just a brief diversion about barter. Now I'm going to move on to money. There's a lot of talk about Adam Smith. Wikipedia's got a massive page about Adam Smith, but I'm going to avoid it. He was the guy who wrote uh, Wealth of Nations. And I'm actually going to probably gloss over most of what he had to say. I have a quote of his up above. There's a whole lot of, you know, you can look at somebody's who wants to sell you gold and see what their description of money and, and the economic system is. Um, but I actually have a bullet item on the show today about the gold standard. So I have some um, mixed feelings about having gold standard. They're not mixed at all. And I'll, I'll make that clear a little bit later in the show. In particular, I'm, uh, I'm seeing on the uh, Renegade Tribune page, I searched for some stuff uh, when I made these notes a week back. There's at least four really cool articles about the fiat dollar, sovereignty power of money, creating nationalistic money, racist good. Um, so there's some, there's some good stuff out there. Uh, I guess I'm going to leave this money topic aside for now and move on to this one because this one seems so interesting. It's loans. Because I was thinking, why do we need money? Why can't we just do these things? Why do we always have to have to have money involved in the picture? I, I remember growing up as an ideal young person full of notions about the way the world ought to be. If it had to do with money, I didn't want anything to do with it. I liked to think about world in an ideal way, and money didn't fit into that picture very much. But here's some interesting things to consider, like why do we need financing? Why do we need money? It's not just because, hey, I want to buy a house and it's got more than it's worth 
more than I've got. There's some really practical descriptions, examples that I could think of for why somebody wants money, why loans are essential. And I will boil it down to a one-sentence explanation after I give a few examples. Uh, I was in a restaurant recently. They have these funny little devices that look like cup holders, and they beep and flash lights when your food is ready. Uh, look at that piece of plastic on the table. It's, it's over the past five years, those things have evolved from a rather clunky piece of plastic to a very smooth piece of plastic with little pegs of metal that run straight through them so you can stack them up and have them charge in a stack. And each one of them has a different ID in them. And these are linked up to a database behind the cash register. So these people can hit a button very easily and know this order gets buzzed on that guy's table. Flashy lights in these things. Well, first of all, somebody had to invent these things and you can't really invent these things very well in your garage. You can come up with a great idea, but when it comes time to actually produce something, what you have to do is say, holy crap, I have to mobilize a whole lot of resources to bring this idea from my head into reality. It's the mobilization of resources. What you do is you go to somebody who has money because that is ultimately the, the uh, water that makes these resources bear fruit. You go to somebody with money and you say, hey, I got a great idea. I'm going to do this thing, blah, blah, blah. I can guarantee you I'll make this much money a year. I'll pay you back this loan. So you can see loans allow the uh, an explosion of the mobilization of resources, which enables creativity for the people who are trying to create out there in the world. Uh, imagine those, those cruise ships. Those things are so gigantic. And they do nothing but take people's extra money. People are on those cruise ships are taking money that they are not don't need to live and spending it absolutely for fun. Imagine how much money it took to make the initial cruise ships, and they had to get some kind of plan to give me so many millions of dollars to make these gigantic ships. And all these people are they're just going to give me money to get on the ship anyway. You get the point. You start a business, you got a, an idea and you plan, and you have to mobilize resources. So the main point is that money, in particular loans in this case, it facilitates investments in future wealth, and it accelerates innovation in such things by allowing rapid mobilization of resources across a, a wide range of, of areas. It includes people, it includes materials you need to buy, engineering, things of that sort. I know this is actually simple, but I didn't actually think about this. I just always thought, loans, why do we need loans and all these kind of things? So those are most of the basics that I wanted to go by, to go over before the start of the show. We're going to come up on a break, and let's see, we got four more minutes. So I have a little more material to go, and I don't know if we'll actually get to the start of the book in the next segment or not. So... I will discuss this little, uh, here's a little quote from a, a book called The Babylonian Woe. I don't really know about where this book came from and how awesome it is or if it's corrupt, but it is interesting and it is, uh, it's all about money. So here's an interesting paragraph from The Babylonian Woe. 
The intellectual faculties are not of themselves sufficient to produce external action. They require the aid of physical force, the direction and combination of which are wholly at the disposal of money, that mighty spring by which the total force of human energies is set in motion. So you might want to check out that book. It's peculiar and interesting, and I don't know if it's actually great. There were a lot of quotes that in that book that I was tempted to get into. I had to hold myself back as I don't want to find myself reading too much. But if you want to find a book that has got some substance in it, it borders on ranting at times, which is amusing. It's creative and a very different perspective on things. That's one, The Babylonian Woe by David Hassel. All right, in the next segment, I'm going to stall until 527 because I got a new subject coming up. Right after the break, we're going to do the gold standard or not the gold standard. What is the gold standard? Things of that sort. So I'm going to jump down to my miscellaneous segment here and stall for a minute or two. Oh, yeah. I got enough time to tell you about a very interesting book that uh, I came across somewhere, probably on disreputable message boards that nobody should be reading. I believe it's called Ethnic Genetic Interests of Europeans by Dr. Frank Salter, Max Planck Planck Society, Volume 24, November 2002. Let's see. Oh, I don't have enough information to make it interesting, darn it. All I can do is recommend it. Um, it, It's a fascinating thing. I don't think I'll even be able to pull it up in the break. I only have two quotes about it. Population and Environment is the article name. Estimating Ethnic Genetic Interests. That was the concept of the the book. Very interesting. Uh, One more time, Dr. Frank Salter from the Max Planck Society. Ethnic Genetic Interests of Europeans. Um, so check that out, and uh, and as before, do go to the Renegade Tribune and do some browsing because there's an awful lot of stuff on most subjects of interest over there. Now let me double check the time. I believe I don't want to be too quiet for too long. Oh, I got one more minute, so I'm going to do. Um, yeah, here's here's a funny little rant. I hope I have enough time to rant this one out. Here's something that happens way too often. And I think you'll find it all familiar. This happens with some with people I know very well. I'm having a political discussion and of course they're describing how in anything with a racial perspective is poisonous thinking. And the funny thing is these people who are saying these things are wealthy people living in gated communities. They're absolutely white. I'm sure this sounds utterly familiar with you. I have such a hard time when I come across these people with uh, this kind of attitude. It's uh, It triggers me to the point where I can't rationally discuss things anymore. Father's shore Hail, 
Rocks have been used by people since the dawn of time. When Rockefeller introduced allopathic medicine, many herbal remedies fell by the wayside as people put their faith in prescription pills and the world just gets sicker. Here at Heathen Herbs, we look to the past and to nature for answers. We offer tinctures, magnesium skin cream, lip balm, tooth powder, colloidal silver throat spray, and more. Check us out at HeathenHerbs.com. Hello, I guess I'm not yet. Twenty seconds. I think I'm back on. I don't hear anything. All right. I'm getting started again and I wanted to mention first of all some exciting news that it looks like we got Somebody stepping up to do the shows on Tuesday nights. This is awesome news. Sinead is back on the lineup. I'm going to do it, and all you guys out there in internet land do this too. I can hear you. I can hear you. Awesome news. I'm very glad to hear that. And I also wanted to uh, say that... that, um, Somebody else did something that was so remarkable recently they deserve a particular round of applause. Somebody named Raleigh Quaid did something like 100 articles in 30 days or some crazy thing like that. Dude, that was some awesome kind of production over there. Very impressed. Okay, back to the show, August 23rd, whatever year this is, 2018. This is Renegade Broadcasting. I'm on to segment number two. We're going for the gold standard. We're going to discuss that a little bit. It's a huge subject, and I'm not going to do the whole thing. But whatever, I'll do enough to make a little more sense out of the presentation of why the Federal Reserve came into being, because there was a lot of this involved. First question is... uh, Why do we need a gold standard? I remember hearing stories about people who didn't do this kind of thing. Wasn't there some story about the National Socialists? They didn't do this. Well, that's right. The National Socialists developed. They were recovering. They were coming out of the horribly screwed up economy of Weimar Germany where they had a central bank. And it was horrible inflation, and there was a large... That's another fascinating show. Cynthia McRae did one on that recently. So anyway, the recovery from 
uh, the disaster of Weimar Germany, which is one of the things the National Socialists did, was they developed their own currency, and it was not backed by gold. It was backed by a, a unique, um, quirky new idea, which is the work productive, the productive capacity of the citizens of the country. I don't know how they worked out the details on the back end, like work units or whatnot, but they were able to start issuing currency, which they were able to conduct international trade with. That currency was backed nothing more by nothing more than the promise that us Germans are going to work our butts off and we're going to produce value, which is the equivalent of the money we're issuing. But that's, that's awesome and crazy. How can they do such a thing? But they did that, and it was awesomely successful, too. So this is one example that a gold standard is not necessary. And the fact that this one works so particularly well it sort of argues that maybe it's not even the gold standard might not even be the best. And uh, I'll just go ahead and give my opinion on that now. I believe that is definitely not the best way to go for uh, several reasons one of which is that most of the gold is probably in the hands of people who don't have your best interests in mind. And if you start buying it from them, uh, you're going to enrich them even further. And if your currency is based on gold, you are vulnerable to the people who own it, pulling it out and putting it back in and causing rapid, crazy changes in the value of your currency, which is one of the subjects that comes up a little bit later. Here's a quote from that book I told you about, the one the National Socialists like, Abolition of Interest Slavery. It's not too long a quote. We have learned in the first place to take full account of the most essential capital of a nation, namely its capacity to work. All thoughts of, a gold, of gold reserves and foreign exchange fade before the industry and e efficiency of well-planned national productive resources. We can smile today at an age when economists were seriously of the opinion that the value of currency was determined, determined by the reserves of gold and foreign exchange and foreign exchange lying in the vaults of the national banks and above all was guaranteed by them. Instead of that, we have learned to realize that the value of a currency lies in a nation's power of production, that an increasing volume of production sustains a currency and could possibly raise its value, whereas decreasing production must, sooner or later, lead to a compulsory devaluation. We were not foolish enough to try to make a currency backed by gold, of which we had none, but for every mark that was issued we required the equivalent of a mark's worth of work done or goods produced. The national socialist economy is one based off work and production. Wouldn't surprise me if that's a, a Hitler quote there, because it, it is quoted within the quote. Within two years of Adolf Hitler being elected, the unemployment problem had been solved, and the country was back on its feet. It had a solid, stable currency, no debt and no inflation, at a time when millions of people in the United States and other Western countries were still out of work and living on welfare. Germany even managed to restore foreign trade by using a barter system, 
equipment, and commodities were exchanged directly with other countries, circumventing the international banks. This system of direct exchange occurred without debt and without trade deficits. And one more quote from there. Germany issued debt-free and interest-free money from 1935 and on, accounting for its startling rise from the Depression to a world power in five years. Germany financed its entire government and war operation from 1935 to 1945 without gold and without debt. And it took the whole capitalist and communist world to destroy the German power over Europe and bring Europe back under the heel of the bankers. Such history of money does not even appear in the textbooks of public government schools today. End of quotes. I will get around to that again later on in the Federal Reserve book because he does talk about World War I, World War II, and other such things. And another thing that I wanted to stress is Germany issued debt-free and interest-free money. Yes, it is feasible to do such a thing, and our government has the power to do such things. They delegated that power to a privately run corporation called the Federal Reserve. Stockholders used to be the other branches of the, the Federal Reserve Bank scattered around the country. Those stockholders were people. Those were owned by private individuals. And so the Federal Reserve was entirely enriching the hands of private individuals. I'm probably getting ahead of myself with that. So the subject I'm talking about here is a gold standard. Oh, yeah, I've mentioned this before, but it's such a great one. I will mention it once again. There's this great short article with cool pictures, easy to read, called Bankers, Bradbury's, and the Carnage on the Western Front. You could search for that one on the network. You'll find it. It is really um, interesting, except it obviously it's written in like uh, some newspaper in the UK. Um, it's totally missing any mention of Jews or Rothschilds. It's still, it's quite interesting though. Now, when I was looking into the background of this about why do we need, or what's this gold standard, I came across this really cool stuff. It was written back in the days when the Federal Reserve was being discussed. There was a thing called a currency famine going on there. And there's you can actually find the publications online, facts, similes, whatever they call it, photocopies of the actual articles and the proceedings of the meetings of these, these organizations where they were discussing things they called currency famines that were happening in the country back in those days. Yeah, so this short history, which happened before the uh, Federal Reserve shows that having the gold standard was actually harmful because it was the guys holding the gold who were manipulating the economy. And they were doing so because they wanted the government to cry for control. I mean, they wanted the people to beg the government to put some controls on the economic system. They wanted to grab control of issuing currency, so they started messing with the currencies so the people would complain about it. Um, very interesting old stuff. I could probably provide those links if anybody's interested. Yeah, the uh, the conclusion of the article, and it's quite interesting to see the funny business that was happening in those days, is that the one who owns the gold, it's, it's 
the question is who owns the gold? It's vulnerable vulnerable to manipulation. It's not necessary. And in fact, it may even be harmful. Moving on, there's a subject here which I've heard many times. So I'm going to mention it again because I think we all say it. But I haven't actually verified it for myself. Even in prep for this little show here, I didn't verify this. I think we've all heard many times that the Federal Reserve prints dollars out of nothing and charges interest to get them back. I believe it's probably true. Um, I have an outline of what is supposedly an accurate description of the money cycle of how money gets into the economy, and it's not exactly that way. So I would like it if somebody can come back to this subject and, and prove this one or not. But the fact is they obfuscate the creation of money so much you might not be able to tell it anymore. But here is a simplified discussion of money creation for the United States economic system. I've got it boiled down to four steps, none of which are too complicated, but you will be confused because they made it a confusing process so that nobody could actually figure out that they're being swindled. First of all, it's you have to grant the fact that the government gave away its power to print money to these other people. That's the uh, presumption. So the government issues, step one, government issues IOUs. These are called bonds. They come from the treasury. The treasury sells these bonds, which are these fancy IOUs. It sells them to the banks. When I say the banks, I don't mean Wells Fargo down on the corner. These are the Federal Reserve Banks, of which I believe there are 12 scattered around the United States. And then these various Federal Reserve Banks sell those bonds that they just bought from the Treasury. They sell those to the Fed. That's the Federal Reserve. And they sell it to the Fed at a profit. So right there, the branches of the Federal Federal Reserve Banks around the country are making a profit on this money that doesn't even exist yet. They're selling IOUs at a profit to the Fed. And they own the Fed. All these banks... These Federal Reserve Banks are the ones who hold the stock in the Fed. The Fed then writes a check for these IOUs, which it just, it's, it's buying these IOUs from the Federal Reserve Bank. It writes a check. It's writing a check on an empty bank account. They do not have money. They are able to write these checks for money that does not exist yet. So they write checks. They give these to the Federal Reserve Branch Banks. And then the Federal Reserve Branch Banks start printing the cash and sending it back over to the treasury. So that's basically the cycle boiled down to five steps, as minimal obfuscation as possible. But it's a a crazy loop of printing money and and charging charging for it. Anyway, um, I'd like to see a little more uh, study on that particular subject. I'll have to probably return to that one. So... Let me check the next uh, break on the break clock. 57.20. No, that's not the right one. Time right now is 43. Yeah, the next break is 15 minutes. Okay, so we're in segment two of the show. I'm finally going to get around to discussing the book. Uh, There's some characters in the book whose names you should all know. If you don't, I want to introduce you to them because I'd like you to know them. Ezra Pound. Very interesting character in history who got screwed over. Eustace Mullins. I will get into quite a bit more about him a bit later. 
the Rothschilds are part of the story, which you probably are not the least bit interested to hear. And a fellow named Paul Warburg and this is brother Max Warburg. These are names that you should know because they're Paul is very important for his role in the founding of the Federal Reserve. He's mentioned all throughout this, this book by Mullins. One thing I'm surprised is that Mullins doesn't seem to mention anywhere in that book that this guy is a Jew. Paul Warburg was a Jew. He was working for the Rothschilds as their representative, and he drove the whole initiative, as you'll see as the story proceeds. I have an article, if you don't believe me, from the Haaretz describing Paul Warburg. Paul Warburg's brother, Max Warburg, was actually in Germany at the time of World War II. Uh, very interesting stuff going on there. And about the Rothschilds, that's actually too big a story to get into. I'd like to see, I'd like to drill into that a little bit more. We're going to get into Mullins later. So I'm going to jump over and tell you a little bit about Ezra Pound. He was famous. Uh, the reason I'm telling you about him is because this book, the expose that people still use as the primary reference for what is the Federal Reserve, this one written by Eustace Mullins, it exists because of Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound got into a lot of trouble, which is an interesting story. He was pissed off about World War I. He could see more wars coming. He, he's, first of all, he's famous for being a poet, poet and a critic. He's got a bunch of poems out there. I guess they're great. Anyway, he was over in Italy talking about how America and, and banks and things like that are screwed up and we should be trying to avoid this war. Well, the war that was obviously coming. Um, our government got super pissed off at this guy for saying these things. Our government had him, I think he was arrested in Italy, brought back to the United States and thrown into jail for a large number of years as, as a pound guy. Um, well, while he was there, I mean, I said the wrong thing. He wasn't thrown into jail. He was thrown into the loony bin. He was actually put into, for some period of time, horrible conditions. But eventually, his friends who were quite popular, uh, famous people like T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, Robert Frost, these people were his contemporaries and pals and supporters. They managed to get him out of the isolation and into a place. It turns out he ended up living in the wing of the loony bin that he actually quite liked because he could. He took over a whole wing and had a couch and a window and was able to have guests and write his poems and think about things all day long. He ended up being quite comfy in there. One of the guests he had was Eustace Mullins. I don't know how the two of them became introduced, but the only book... Ezra Pound ever commissioned to be written was this one by Eustace Mullins. He told Eustace to investigate the Federal Reserve. That's how he comes into this story. So Ezra's part of the story. He was a wise man. He could see the scam. And he got Eustace moving on the story. So that's Ezra. Eustace is the author. I'm actually going to read the author's foreword, so you'll find out plenty about his involvement as we go ahead. And then the Rothschilds, which are too big. And then these guys, I'm really so surprised. I just dug up today that uh, Paul Warburg was a Jew, because as I was preparing for the show, I was thinking how his name kept coming up. And I wasn't too sure about him anyway. That's one of the facts. So the conclusion is, if you look at the cast of characters, 
it was Jews leading a bunch of people who were probably Freemasons. It was the Rothschilds, it was Warburg, and it was a bunch of corrupt uh, high-level politicians in the United States, all of whom's names are known, when they did, and what they did. All right, so we're going to push ahead, and we're going to get started with the foreword of the book. I won't be able to finish the foreword before the next break, but I don't want to stall for too long, so... I'm going to get started on the foreword. This will be reading, but the foreword's not too long, nor is the introduction, so there will be some reading here tonight. It's not going to be bad, don't worry. If it gets too bad, I'll break it up with some stuff I got for filling the time. Foreword, Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. In 1949, while I was visiting Ezra Pound, who was a political prisoner at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., that's a federal institution for the insane. Dr. Pound asked me if I had ever heard of the Federal Reserve System. I replied that I had not as of the age of 25. He then showed me a $10 bill marked Federal Reserve Note. He asked me if I would do some research at the Library of Congress on the Federal Reserve System, which had issued this bill. Pound was unable to go to the library himself as he was being held without trial as a political prisoner by the United States government. After he was denied broadcasting time in the U.S., Dr. Pound broadcast from Italy in an effort to persuade people of the United States not to enter World War II. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had personally ordered Pound's indictment, spurred by the demands of his three personal assistants, Henry Dexter White, some dude, Lachlan Curry, and another famous name, Alger Hiss, all of whom were subsequently identified as being connected with communist espionage. Um, Radio broadcaster side note here, uh, most of what as um, Eustace Mullins writes comes from the perspective of a uh, a guy who's, uh, I believe he's profoundly Christian and um, not, inquirely, not entirely up to the standards that most of us would expect at this point. Back to the reading. I, this is back to the Eustace's word, I had no interest in money or banking as a subject because I was working on a novel. Pound offered to supplement my income by $10 a week for a few weeks. My initial research revealed evidence of an international banking group which had secretly planned the writing of the Federal Reserve Act and Congress's enactment of this plan into law. These findings confirmed what Pound had long suspected. He said, you must work on this as a detective story. I was fortunate in having my research at the Library of Congress, directed by a prominent scholar named George Simpson, founder of the National Press Club, who was described by the New York Times, blah, blah, a highly regarded reference source in the Capitol. And congressmen and reporters go to him on the subjects. Um, I'll do paragraph two. Oh, and you can see why I'm choosing to read the foreword. This foreword helps to establish the credibility of the book. Despite the large number of footnotes and references, the, pre- the story that comes beforehand is quite interesting. Back to the forward. Yeah, back to the forward. I did research 
for four hours each day at the Library of Congress and went to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in the afternoon. Pound and I went over the previous day's notes. I then had dinner with George Stimson at school's cafeteria while he went over my material. I then went back to my room to type up the corrected notes. Both Simpson and Pound made many suggestions in guiding me in a field in which I had no previous experience. When Pound's resources ran low, I got a Guggenheim Foundation, and he applied there, Huntington Hartford Foundation, and other foundations to complete his research on the Federal Reserve. Even though my foundation applications were sponsored by the three leading poets of America, Ezra Pound, E.E. Cummings, and Elizabeth Bishop, all of the foundations refused to sponsor this research. His applications were sponsored by these notable people, but the foundations refused to sponsor him. Wow. I then wrote up my findings to date and in 1950 began efforts to market the manuscript in New York. This is his first manuscript of the book, The Secrets of the Federal Reserve. Eighteen publishers turned it down without comment. But the 19th one, president um, of a publishing company, gave some friendly advice in the office. He said, I like your book, but we can't print it. Neither can anybody else in New York. Why don't you bring in a prospectus for your novel? I think we can give you an advance on the novel. You may as well forget about getting any Federal Reserve book published I doubt if it could ever be printed. So that's what the leader of the publishing company told Eustace. Well, this was devastating news coming after two years of intensive work. So he went back to Ezra Pound, tried to find a publisher, and after two years of trying, it was finally published in a small edition by two of Ezra Pound's own disciples. Using their own private funds under the title, which was just the Mullins on the Federal Reserve. It had a different title back in those days. In 1954, a second edition of Unauthorized Alterations was published. Oh, my God. As it was called, the Federal Reserve Conspiracy. I hate when they use those damn just titles that diminish the subject. In 1955, Guido brought out a German edition, and the book was seized. It was seized, and the entire edition of 10,000 copies was burned by the government agents. The burning of the book was upheld in uh, April 21st, 19th. Oh, I got to check the clock. It's 5.57. What do we got here? Got another minute and a half. The burning of the book was upheld in April 21 by Judge Judge Israel Katz. What a surprise. Of the Bavarian Supreme Court. The U.S. government refused to intervene because U.S. High Commissioner to Germany, James B. Conant, who was the president of Harvard at the time, had approved an initial book burning order. What? Has anybody ever heard of this before? Some dude from president of Harvard issued a book, an initial book burning order, which the German government honored. Anyway, this is the only book which has been burned in Germany since World War II. And in 1968, a printed edition of the book appeared in California. Both the FBI and the U.S. postal inspectors refused to act. 
despite numerous complaints from me during the next decade. What does it say? It appeared in, in uh, California. In 1980, a new German edition appeared because the United States government no longer dictated internal affairs of Germany. The identical book, which had been burned in 1955, now circulates in Germany without interference. So you can see he had a lot of trouble getting this book out. I'm going to continue with this after the break, but here's some more. This guy has actually had attempts made on his life. He has had to hide in a shack before. He's had the brake lines to his car severed multiple times. He has had his phone hijacked. There's some interesting radio shows you can hear on that subject out there. So he's got quite an interesting story, and we will continue shortly after the break. And here we go. Renegade Broadcasting Hawks 25th, 2018. Music, Kyle. Give me some. Are you sick of hearing all the same old commercials on Renegade Broadcasting? Ugh, I have heard this damn Noel Ignatieff clip six million times. I get it already. Well, we need your help to create new, exciting, and enlightening content for our breaks. Find yourself a decent microphone or borrow one from somebody else. Look up some royalty-free music or let us do it for you. Just get creative. Make the commercials 40 seconds long to fit our schedule. Winners will have their commercials played on the air and also receive some great prizes. For more details, please go to renegadebroadcasting.com backslash contest. You're listening to Renegade Broadcasting.
And we're back on the show, August 25th, 2018, Renegade Broadcasting. This is the Goy Daddy Show, talking about the Federal Reserve, in particular Eustace Mullins' book, The Secrets of the Federal Reserve. We're currently plowing through the foreword. It's, it's not much longer. I'm going to return to the reading. Just went over the bit about book burnings in Germany, which is a real surprise. Okay, back to Eustace's voice. I had collaborated on several books with Mr. H.L. Hunt, and he suggested that I should continue my long-delayed research on the Federal Reserve and bring out a more definitive version of the book. I had just signed a contract to write the authorized biography of Ezra Pound, and the Federal Reserve book had to be postponed. Mr. Hunt passed away before I could get back to my research, and once again, I faced the problem of financing research for the book. My original book had traced and named the shadowy figures in the United States who planned the Federal Reserve Act. This is the business I want to tell you guys about how they got this act through Congress, who it was. Man, is that interesting stuff. You're all, you're all going to have to read this book. But anyway, back to uh, Ezra's voice here. I now discovered that the men whom I exposed in 1952 as the shadowy figures behind the operation of the Federal Reserve System were themselves shadows, as the American fronts for the unknown figures who became known as the London Connection. You know, all that talk about the city of London. What is the city of London? How it's this mysterious. Yeah, well, that's a that's a subject that's quite interesting, too. Um, I found that notwithstanding our successes in the Wars of Independence and 1812 against England, we remained an economic and financial colony of Great Britain. For the first time, we located the original stockholders of the Federal Reserve Banks, and we traced their parent companies to the London Connection. Now, at this point, I want to interrupt again, because one of the most confusing things that I found about researching this and discussing this is that there seems to be an odd mixture of London, uh, Britain, uh, Masons, and not often mentioning Jews, but... Um, it begins to be very hard to figure out who's who's doing who's doing who at this point. Um, however, like I mentioned, the two primary names as the drivers in this are Paul Warburg and the Rothschilds. And I have definitely got Rothschilds are Jewish and the Warburgs were Jewish. And you will find as I go through this that Warburgs are not called out as Jews. They're just called out as Rothschilds agents. But still, it is confusing how all this talk about London, it makes me wonder. There's that um, slightly crazy guy named LaRouche, Lyndon LaRouche. I was always puzzled. He would say these things like, Britain, the, the problem with the world is, blah. I don't know what he has, so many facts and details. And then he'd come, he'd come to his overly terse conclusion of the villain. It was like, Britain, there's... British dudes, and I was always thinking, what the hell is he talking about? I think he was talking about the city of London and the banking systems, but it was always too hard to figure out what that guy was talking about. Back to the story. 
He just says he discovered the London connection. He traced the stockholders to the London connection. We'll get to that. There's a whole segment of this book on the London connection. This research is substantiated by citations and documentation from hundreds of newspapers, periodicals, and books, and charts showing blood, marriage, and business relationships. Yes, this book has family trees in it. This book is very well documented. More than a thousand issues of the New York Times on microfilm have been checked, not only for original information, but verification of statements from other sources. It is a truism of the writing profession that a writer has only one book within him. This seems applicable in my case because I am now in the fifth decade of continuous writing on this subject and the inside story of the Federal Reserve System. This book was from its inception commissioned and guided by Ezra Pound. Four of his protégés have previously been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. William Butler Yeats for his poetry, James Joyce for Ulysses, which is an incomprehensible hunk. It's a brick of literature. Um, Ernest Hemingway for The Sun Also Rises, and T.S. Eliot for The Wasteland. Pound played a major role in the inspiration and in the editing of these works, which leads us to believe that this present work, also inspired by Pound, represents an ongoing literary tradition. And I want to note that there are probably the majority of the books on the Federal Reserve you'll find out there at this point took even plagiarized directly passages from this Ezra Pound book. I remember a dude at a job 10 years ago or something. He had the book on the shelf about the Fed. He was this smart guy who knew more about money because he had read the Fed book. That book is specifically stated as being one that plagiarized stuff out of this one. So anyway, I'm the smart guy now because I got the book, Secrets of the Federal Reserve. Back to Eustace. Although this book in its inception was expected to be a tortuous work on economic and monetary techniques, it soon developed into a story of such universal and dramatic appeal from the outset, Ezra Pound urged me to write it as a detective story, a genre which was invented by my fellow Virginia Edgar Allan Poe. Well, that's kind of cool. I didn't know that. I believe that the continuous circulation of this book during the past 40 years has not only exonerated Ezra Pound for his much-condemned political and monetary statements, but also that it has been and will continue to be the ultimate weapon against the powerful conspirators who compelled him to serve 13 and a half years without trial as a political prisoner in an insane asylum, just like the damn KGB. And this was our great country. His earliest vindication came when the government agents who represented the conspirators refused to allow him to testify in his own defense. The second vindication came in 1958 when these same agents dropped all charges against him and he walked out of St. Elizabeth's Hospital a free man once more. His third and final vindication in this work, which documents every aspect of his exposure of the ruthless international financiers to whom Ezra Pound became but one more victim 
doomed to serve years as the man in the iron mask because he had dared to alert his fellow Americans to their furtive acts of treason against all the people of the United States. Hear, hear. Uh, oh, it goes on. But I'm going to interrupt it at this point with something that I just remembered. Uh, I sort of ranted a, a little bit earlier, or at least I indicated that Wikipedia is getting to be perhaps less reliable than it used to be. Um, take a look at the Ezra Pound page on Wikipedia. It's absolutely amazing to read. It is essentially a story about the, the Jews. The, the, all throughout, first of all, there's lies in there. There's a, a, an established lie written by the known liar, reported by the known degenerate liar, Ginsburg, who said Ezra Pound said something. He, people who know Ezra Pound said he didn't say that. That is not something Ezra Pound would ever say. The, the quote about his biggest mistake was uh, prosaic anti-Semitism or some such crap. It's a lie. It's quoted there in the Wikipedia page. But the amazing thing is, as you read this, read the last sentence in the Wikipedia thing. It's about the, the Jews. The last sentence is something about how he repudiated his anti-Semitic views. That whole Wikipedia page is glorification of the Jews and, and vilification of somebody who didn't like the Jews. It's a shocking example of it. Okay, back to the narrative. Anyway, go click on that, uh, Wikipedia Ezra Pound. You should read some of his stuff anyway, says the old man to his young disciples. On with the story. In my lectures throughout this nation and in my appearances on many radio and television programs, I have sounded the toxin that the Federal Reserve System is not federal. It has no reserves and it's not a system at all, but it's a criminal syndicate. I love that quote. The Federal Reserve is not federal, and it has no reserves, and it's not a system. Awesome. From 1910, when the conspirators met on Jekyll Island. Yes, I will get to Jekyll Island. There's an awesome chapter in this, all about this Jekyll Island stuff. There's that book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. From when, when the conspirators met on Jekyll Island in Georgia to the present time, the machinations of the Federal Reserve bankers have been shrouded in secrecy. Today, that secrecy has cost the American people a $3 trillion debt with annual interest payments to these bankers amounting to some $300 billion per year, sums which stagger the imagination. Of course, those sums are much worse by now. Officials of the Federal Reserve System routinely issue remonstrances to the public, much as the Hindu fakir pipes an insistent tune to the dazed cobra, yes, which sways its head before him. The Federal Reserve says not to resolve the situation, but to prevent it from striking him. Such was the soothing letter written by Donald J. Wynn, assistant of the Board of Governors, in response to an inquiry by a congressman on March 10th. Dr. Wynn states, The Federal Reserve System was established by an act of Congress and is not a private corporation. On the next page, Wynn continues, The stock of the Federal Reserve Banks 
is held entirely by commercial banks that are members of the federal system, Federal Reserve System. He offers no explanation as to why the government has never owned a single share of stock in any Federal Reserve Bank or why the Federal Reserve System is not a private corporation when all of its stock is owned by private corporations. Back to my side messages. It is probably impossible at this time, and certainly they will obfuscate as much as possible, to determine who actually are the shareholders of the Federal Reserve. Back in the days when this book was researched, there was enough information to gather a lot of detail about percentages of stocks owned by which families. It's the famous families we all know, Rockefellers, Rothschilds, Warburgs, and and whatnot. However, due to mergers and acquisitions and things of that sort, uh, the trail of who is the real stockholders is probably probably lost at this point. During one of the things as I was researching it, they pretty much said it's too hard to figure out who actually owns that stock anymore. Back to the story. American history in the 20th century has recorded the amazing achievements of the Federal Reserve bankers. First, okay, that was a tongue-in-cheek sentence. Here are the achievements. First, the outbreak of World War I, which was made possible by the funds available from the new Central Bank of the United States. And it started like shortly after its founding. Secondly, the Agricultural Depression of 1920, Third, the Black Friday crash on Wall Street of October 1929, and the ensuing Great Depression, and the Fourth, World War II, and the Fifth, the conversion of the assets of the United States and its citizens from real property to paper assets from 1945 to the present, transforming a victorious America and foremost world power in 1945 to the world's largest debtor nation in 1990. I'm going to interject while I can think about it. You might notice as I have read through the words of Eustace so far, he hasn't mentioned Jews, I don't think, once. And he doesn't do it often, if at all. He doesn't even identify the Rothschilds that way. However, when you read about Eustace Mullins... All you read about is he's an anti-Semite, blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. That's a clue that you're headed in the right direction when you read Eustace. This guy doesn't even talk about him, and they're calling him an anti-Semite. They don't want you to read this guy's words. Today, this nation, the United States, lies in economic ruins, devastated and destitute, in much the same dire straits in which Germany and Japan found themselves in 1945. That sounds kind of hyperbolic because everybody seems to think the economy is going well, but the debt is extraordinary and there are so many poor people. Will Americans act to rebuild our nation as Germany and Japan have done when they faced the identical conditions which we now face, or will we continue to be enslaved by the Babylonian debt money system which was set up the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 to complete our total destruction. This is the only question which we have to answer, and we do not have much time left to answer it. Because of the depth and the importance of the information which I had developed at the Library of Congress under the tutelage of Ezra Pound, 
this became the happy hunting ground for many other would-be historians who were unable to research this material for themselves. Over the past four decades, I have become accustomed to seeing this material appear in many other books, invariably attributed to other writers with my name never mentioned. To add insult to injury, not only my material, but even my title has been appropriated in a massive, if obtuse work called, oh, this is the one I told you about, called Secrets of the Temple, the Federal Reserve. This heavily advertised book received reviews ranging from incredulous to hilarious. Forbes magazine advised its readers to read their review and save their money, pointing out that a reader will discover no secrets and that this is one of those books whose fanfare far exceeds their merit. This was not accidental, as this overblown whitewash of the Federal Reserve Bankers was published by the most famous non-book publisher in the world. So that was the popular take on the Federal Reserve, published to discredit anybody who believes that it is a problem. And on to the last paragraph of the foreword. After my initial shock at discovering the most influential literary personality of the 20th century, Ezra Pound, was imprisoned in the hellhole in Washington, I immediately wrote for assistance to a Wall Street financier at whose estate I had frequently been a guest. I reminded him that, as a patron of the arts, he could not afford to allow Pound to remain in such inhuman captivity. His reply shocked me even more. He wrote back that your friend can well stay where he is. It was some years before I was able to understand that. For this investment banker and his colleagues, Ezra Pound would always be the enemy. That's the end of the foreword from Ezra Pound. He lived in Jackson Hole, Wyoming at the time. That was 1991. And I do want to read off a, a quick list of books that Ezra Pound has written. I mean, Eustace Mullins has written. I keep switching those names around. 2720. So I have enough time to get to a book list. So before we move on to the introduction, I'm going to give you a quick glimpse of the scope of the stuff as Eustace Mullins has worked on. Um, so um, I better talk a little bit about, hey, uh, the weather today was kind of, kind of awesome. So I'm out in California and I'm I'm sweating right now, sweating pretty bad. I'm in a, a locked up room trying to do this thing. I got the nerves and I got the high temperature. So you could probably hear the drops of sweat coming through the thing that I can't find my book list. I will try to find that thing and get back to it a little bit later. I'm going to stall a little bit longer looking one more place. Show summary, we went over barter. We went over money and Adam Smith. We went over loans. I found that loans part to be very interesting. The gold standard, that stuff was very interesting. Printing money, that was interesting. Here are the characters. And here is the book list of Mullins. It's worth um, a minute to read this because some of the stuff that Renegade is quite interested in actually is something that Mullins has written about too. This book, 
he wrote a book which I haven't looked at yet called Murder by Injection, the story of the medical conspiracy against America. That one sounds quite interesting. So I'm hoping to get around to that one if I can ever actually finish um, this. It's really not, but I shouldn't be discouraging to you all. This book, The Secrets of the Federal Reserve, I, yes, you can hear the pages. This is a paper book, and it is only uh, 200 pages long. But it is dense, and I'm trying to understand it, so it is taking me quite some time to get through it. So he wrote Murder by Injection. He wrote The New History of the Jews. That was 1968. He wrote The Curse of Canaan, which is another book which is about the Jews. He wrote The Great Betrayal, which is about the general welfare clause of the U.S. Constitution. That was published in 1991. He wrote The World Order, Our Secret Rulers in 1992. Here's a book with a great vague title. A Study in the Hegemony of Parasitism. I'm guessing that's about Jews, but here's another one that is particularly interesting also. The Rape of Justice, which is about the American tribunals after World War II. So this dude did an awful lot of writing. Uh, very interesting subjects, too. Okay, so back to the show notes. And a quick check. So I got about five minutes more. Um, I'm going to pull up some notes about Ezra because I'm going to postpone uh, starting a new subject to the next segment. So I'm going to pull up some quotes from Ezra Pound. And I told you to go look at the Wikipedia page. I'm curious if anybody did. Guys in the chat room, anybody go to the Wikipedia page? So, quote from Ezra Pound. His most famous book was something called The Cantos. People thought it was his masterpiece, and apparently he never liked it. And in the end, he said he screwed it all up, The Cantos. So here's some beautiful Ezra Pound quotes. Man reading should be man intensely alive. The book should be a ball of light in one's hand. Sounds cool. Literature is news that stays news. There is no reason why the same man should be like the same books at 18 and 40 and at 48. Boy, is that true, I tell you. If you are not changing, this is not an Ezra Pound quote. This is me thinking out loud. If life's not changing you, you're not doing it right. You're doing something wrong. Life is a challenge. And it changes you. Here's an Ezra Pound quote. The apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bow. Another quote. And the days are not full enough and the nights are not full enough and life slips by like a field mouse not shaking not shaking the grass holy crap does it ever sneak by another reservoir pound quote properly we should read for power man reading should be man intensely alive the book should be a ball of light in one's hand this brings to light the problem with that this generation faces. They don't read anymore. 
very video oriented. And I don't believe that the learning transmits deeply into your head when you don't read it. And, and writing is essential too to make it really sink in. Transmission of knowledge from one generation to the next. What a disastrous state this is in. I'm sure you guys all have the same feeling about this. Growing up with a large number of ancient stories, those don't get passed on except in the very demented form. You'll find them referenced in The Simpsons. Sure, they'll have heard about Hansel and Gretel that way. Oh, that story. What a disgusting story. But I can think of several other stories that I read as a kid that I thought were great and greatly touched me, like Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web and great things of that sort, the entire Little House on the Prairie series. What a what a jewel that Little House on the Prairie series is. Uh, the, the modern generation is not going to get that stuff. They're losing it. Yeah, there's, there are so many things that are being lost. Jeez. Another quote from Ezra. No man understands a deep book until he has seen and lived at least part of its contents. Ezra Pound real education must ultimately be limited to men who insist on knowing the who insist on knowing. Oh, this is cool. Real education must ultimately be limited to men who insist on knowing. The rest is mere sheep herding. That's a good one. I guess this is kind of like why I wanted to read this book. This A slave is one who waits for someone to come and free him. Oh, man, listen to that one. A slave is one who waits for someone to come and free him. Jeez, that's a goodie. I desired my dust to be mingled with yours forever and forever and forever. Beautiful. nothing about South Africa in Western schools, other than that there was an evil apartheid government of white racists who oppressed everyone until the great St. Nelson Mandela came along. Now you can learn the real history of exploration, conflict, concentration camps for the Boers, Jewish-funded black terrorism, Winnie Mandela and her necklacing, rampant murder and rape under the ANC, the so-called squatter camps, how the Rainbow Nation is a blueprint for what's to come for whites worldwide, and so much more. Between Heaven and Hell, the true story of whites in South Africa by Sinead McCarthy. Free to watch at whitesouthafrica.com.
set upon myself As the light fades I set into myself Shadows draw itself from the cell. I suppose we're back on, so I'm going to get rolling here. Back on to segment number four of the show about the Federal Reserve. Eustace Mullins, The Secrets of the Federal Reserve. We went through the foreword, which I found to be quite interesting as background, incredible basis for the entire book itself, and the interesting story of Eustace Mullins and Ezra Pound. The foreword was written by Eustace. I'm moving on to the introduction at this point, which is thankfully very short. It's only like two pages. In fact, half of it is something written by Thomas Jefferson. So I am going to have time to plow ahead with some some of the Jekyll Island chapter tonight, because I believe I got about 20 minutes left on the show here tonight. Introduction by Ezra Pound from St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., 1950. Here are the simple facts of the great betrayal. Wilson and House, those are some of the key players I'll get to around to. Wilson and House knew that they were doing something momentous. One cannot fathom men's motives, and this pair probably believed in what they were up to, What they did not believe in was representative government. They believed in government that government by an uncontrolled oligarchy whose acts would only become apparent after an interval so long that the electorate would never would be forever incapable of doing anything efficient to remedy the depredations. Very concisely stated. The second page of the introduction is quite interesting. This was included by Ezra Pound in the introduction. It's Jefferson's opinion on the constitutionality of the bank. See, apparently there was a lot of discussion about a national bank and Hamilton wanted to ram one through in the early days. And Anyway, on with uh, Jefferson's opinion on the constitutionality, February 15th, 1791. This is from the writings of Thomas Jefferson. The bill for establishing a national bank in 1791 undertakes, among other things, to form the subscribers into a corporation to enable them in their corporate capacities to receive grants of lands and so far is against the laws of Mortmain. Mortmain's a funny word, M-O-R-T-M-A-I-N, the laws of Mortmain. To make alien subscribers capable of holding lands and so far is against the laws of alienage. Fourth, to transmit these lands on the death of a proprietor to a certain line of successors and so far changes the course of 
descents, which is another legal term of transmission of property. The fifth item, to put the lands out of the reach of forfeiture or escheat. And so far is against the laws of forfeiture and escheat. I don't even know if I'm saying that word right. E-S-C-H-E-A-T, not commonly used nowadays. I'm not sure what it means. Sixth item, to transmit personal chattels to successors in a certain line and so far is against the laws of distribution. Number seven, to give them the sole and exclusive right of banking under the national authority and so far is against the laws of monopoly. Number eight, to communicate to them a power to make laws paramount to the laws of the states so they must be construed to protect the institution from the control of the state legislatures, and so probably they will be construed. I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground that all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states or to the people. To take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power no longer susceptible of any definition. The incorporation of a bank and the powers assumed by this bill have not, in my opinion, been delegated to the United States by the Constitution. And it's interesting to note about the eight violations in here the uh, current Federal Reserve does do the things Thomas Jefferson said they very much should not do. So that's the end of the introduction by Thomas Jefferson. I am going to push on because the first chapter of the book is most detective-like. It is about Jekyll Island. It's got a great name and... uh, It has been the source of other books like the famous one called The Creature from Jekyll Island. I have to take a moment to find my notes on Jekyll Island. If I don't find them, I'm going to to read because I have used up my intentional material. I have about 20 minutes left. And the reading is not bad. So if I don't read, don't sweat it, guys. You'll like it. Okay, here here are my Jekyll Island notes. Again, the the players and the creature from Jekyll Island. Primary player is Paul Warburg, who I've mentioned already and who I have identified as a Jew, although Mullins does not do so. So uh, I've I've done some extracts from the book because I didn't want to directly read the entire chapter to you guys. Okay, so... It was to head off and control such reforms. There was a discussion of reforms. There were great discussions going on about banking reforms in those days because of the currency famine that I mentioned. That's the background upon which these these Jekyll Island meetings took place. Um, I do have quite a bit of notes on that. Um, I didn't think it would be interesting, but it just take it that if you were to look into it, you would find it interesting. There was a lot of currency instability and things of happening in the monetary system in the United States prior to 1913 when the Federal Reserve came into act, into uh, business. 
years before that, there was a lot of funny business going on. So it was to head off and control such reforms that the National Monetary Commission had been set up with Nelson Aldrich as its head. He was the majority leader of the Senate. So they wanted to set up some committees in order to prevent real reform of the um, that is to prevent reform that actually favors the citizens of the United States. They wanted to get reform going that would favor the banking industries and the Wall Street interests. So they set up something called the National Monetary Commission to study this. November 10, 1910. Nation's leading financiers were seen by reporters in Hoboken, New Jersey, leaving on a secret mission. So I'm going to read some extracts now from Eustace. This is uh, Chapter 1, Jekyll Island. Picture a party of the nation's greatest bankers stealing out of New York on a private railroad car under cover of darkness, stealthily traveling hundred miles, hundreds of miles south, embarking on a mysterious launch, sneaking onto an island deserted by all but a few servants, living there a full week under such rigid secrecy that the names of not one of them was once mentioned, lest the servants might learn the identities and disclose to the world that this strangest, most secret expedition in the history of American finance was happening. I am not romancing. I am giving to the world for the first time the real story of how the famous Aldrich Currency Report the foundation of our new currency system was written. Get that? They snuck off. These bankers led by Paul Warburg, they had a dude on the team who was a banking expert. They had a dude on the team who was an expert on getting legislation passed in Congress. They met secretly. And it's proven later. Uh, the proof that it happened comes later. So he's, he is completely justified in writing these paragraphs. This stuff did happen. Back to the story. The utmost secrecy was enjoined upon all. The public must not glean a hint of what was to be done. Senator Aldrich notified each one to go quietly into a private car of which the railroad had received orders to draw up on an unfrequented platform. Off the party set, New York's ubiquitous reporters had been foiled. Nelson Aldrich had confided to Henry Frank Paul, that's Paul Warburg, and Piat that he was to keep them locked up at Jekyll Island. He told everybody, we're going to keep you locked up at Jekyll Island, out of the rest of the world, until they had evolved and compiled a scientific currency system for the United States the real birth of the present Federal Reserve System. The plan done on Jekyll Island in the conferences with Paul, Frank, and Henry. Warburg, that's Paul Warburg I mentioned before. Warburg is the link that binds the Aldrich system and the present system together. He, more than any one man, has made the system possible as a working reality. And there's mentioned later how Warburg is proven to be... uh, the representative of the Rothschilds in the U.S. and and how Warburg's brother was up to funny business in Germany and not just in Germany and the Russian Revolution and financing that as well. Back to the uh, 
Jekyll Island chapter. In the autumn of 1910, six men went out to shoot ducks. Aldrich, his secretary, Shelton, Andrews, Davison, Vanderlip, and Warburg. Reporters were waiting at the Brunswick, Georgia station. Mr. Davison went out and talked to them. The reporters dispersed, and the secret of the strange journey was not divulged. Mr. Aldrich asked him how he had managed it, and he did not volunteer the information. And from these references, there's a footnote on this. these quotes. These quotes are, are published by the people involved in their memoirs, and they were dying and telling the facts about their life. The stuff I'm telling you is copiously documented. From these references, it is possible to piece together the story. Aldrich's private car, which had left Hoboken Station with its shades drawn, had taken the financiers to Jekyll Island, Georgia. Some years earlier, a very exclusive group of millionaires led by J.P. Morgan had purchased the island as a winter retreat. They called themselves the Jekyll Island Hunt Club. And at first, the island was used only for hunting expeditions until the millionaires realized that its pleasant climate offered a warm retreat from the rigors of winters in New York, and they began to build splendid mansions, which they called cottages, for their family's winter vacations. Okay, another side note here. This reeks of the kind of pedophile stuff that we've been hearing about so much lately, that these rich guys had this island where they were free to do whatever they wanted on these islands. I'm, I'd be afraid to see the kind of things and the kind of ceremonies they conducted on this private island in those old days. Back to the story. The club building itself, being quite isolated, was sometimes in demand for stag parties. You see, stag parties. Do you think it's just guys drinking and strippers? I don't know, maybe. Stag parties and other pursuits unrelated to hunting. On such occasions, the club members who were not invited to see these specific outings were asked not to appear there for a certain number of days. Do you see how this stinks? Before Nelson Aldrich's party had left New York, the club's members had been notified that the club would not be, would, it would be occupied for the next two weeks. So nobody was to come back. They had it for two weeks. Yeah, this is like the skull and bones and this Talmudic party that sounds really creepy. One-sixth of the total wealth of the world was represented by the members of the Jekyll Island Club. Membership was by inheritance only. By the Jekyll Island Club, I mean the larger scale picture of the, the millionaires who had their vacation homes down there, not the five people who were there to do the special Jekyll Island meeting where they planned the Federal Reserve. So this was an island for the filthy rich, filthy corrupt, I'm sure. The Aldrich group, Aldrich being the senator who is in charge of leading this bogus meeting, the Aldrich group had no interest in hunting. Jekyll Island was chosen for the site of the preparation of the central bank because it offered complete privacy and because there was not a journalist within 50 miles. Such was the need for secrecy that the members of the party agreed before arriving on Jekyll Island that no last names would be used at any time during their two-week stay. The group later referred to themselves as the First Name Club 
that the last names of Warburg, Strong, Vanderlip, and others were prohibited during their stay. The customary attendants had been given two-week vacations from the club, and new servants were brought in from the mainland for this occasion who did not know the names of any of those present. Even if they had been interrogated after the Eldridge party went back to New York, they could not have given the names. This arrangement proved to be so satisfactory that the members limited the members limited to those who had actually been present at Jekyll Island later had a number of informal get-togethers in New York. In fact, no benefaction took place at Jekyll Island. The Aldrich group journeyed there in private to write the banking and currency legislation, which the National Monetary Commission had been ordered to prepare in public. At stake was the future control of the money and credit of the United States. If any genuine monetary reform had been prepared and presented to Congress, it would have ended the power of the elitist one, one the elitist one world money creators. Jekyll Island ensured that a central bank would be established in the United States, which would give these bankers everything they had always wanted. So who were these guys? The senator's job was to make sure the plan could get past Congress. Paul Warburg, a Jew, a banking expert, he was to do most of the actual design work. The others were bankers there to make sure Warburg had all the information he needed to finish the job in one week. The monetary reform plan prepared at Jekyll Island was to be presented to Congress as the completed work of the National Monetary Commission, even though they were ordered to prepare that in public. It was imperative that the real authors of the bill remain hidden. So great was popular resentment against bankers since the Panic of 1907 that no congressman would dare to vote for a bill bearing the Wall Street taint, no matter who had contributed to his campaign expenses. The Jekyll Island plan was a central bank plan, and in this country there was a long tradition of struggle against inflicting a central bank on the American people. And these people were well known to the American public as Wall Street people. And I just mentioned in this paragraph, the Panic of 1907. These are the things that were happening that were caused by these very people attending this meeting, this panic, and the, the currency famine, in order to upset the American public to make them beg for control of the monetary system. And then these guys sneak in the back and put themselves in charge. Back to the narrative. It had begun with Thomas Jefferson's fight against Alexander Hamilton's scheme for the First Bank of the United States, backed by James Rothschilds. Now, did any of you guys know that? Because Hamilton has such a good reputation. I thought everybody fully respected that guy. He was pushing for the First Bank, and he was backed by one of these Rothschild guys. I wonder if he was being fooled or what, but I was quite surprised to read that. Back to the narrative. The effort to get the National Bank going had continued with President Andrew Jackson's successful war 
I better back up. Jefferson's fight continued with President Andrew Jackson's successful war against Alexander Hamilton's scheme for the Second Bank of the United States, in which Nicholas Biddle was acting as the agent for James Rothschild of Paris. There, there it is again. And you'll notice as I read along, Jew is not mentioned anywhere in the system, anywhere in the whole paragraph. The result of that struggle was the creation of the independent sub-treasury system, which supposedly had served to keep the funds of the United States out of the hands of financiers. A study of the panics of, here, here are the panics, the panics of 1873, 1893, and 1907 indicates that these panics were the result of international bankers' operations in London also known as Rothschilds. So they induced the panics, and now they're fixing it. It's that damn, it's that uh, response, it's that uh, crisis response um, thing that you guys always talk about. Federal Reserve System was chosen, the name, to avoid any connotations of the central bank, because they give it this nice name. It's federal, and it's the reserve. However, the Jekyll Island plan would It would be a central bank plan, fulfilling the main functions of a central bank. It would be owned by private individuals who would profit from ownership of shares. As a bank of issue, it would control the nation's money and credit. Thus, the proposed Federal Reserve Bank was to be controlled by Congress and answerable to the government but the majority of the directors were to be chosen directly or indirectly by the banks of the association. In the final refinement of Warburg's plan, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors would be appointed by the President of the United States, but the real work of the board would be controlled by the Federal Advisory Council, which was the Federal Advisory Council, which would be meeting with the various governors. The council would be chosen by the directors of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks and would remain unknown to the public. Do you hear that BS? So the Federal Reserve Board of Governors doesn't really do the work. The Federal Advisory Council actually does the work, and they are appointed by the um, owners of the other Federal Reserve Banks. It's designed to be entirely under the radar of the United States public, brilliantly designed to do so. The next consideration was to conceal the fact that the proposed Federal Reserve System would be dominated by the masters of the New York money market. Part of this plan is to have banks, to to sell it to the public, that there would be Federal Reserve banks scattered around the country. Therefore, it represents everybody. The government is spread across the country, except they specifically designed it so that the Federal Reserve Bank in New York would be the one really in charge, not just in terms of holding shares of stock, but in terms of appointing governors to the boards and such. Back to the story. Paul Warburg announced at Jekyll Island the primary deception which would prevent the citizens from recognizing that his plan set up a central bank. Primary, Paul advanced the primary deception The deception was the regional reserve system. That's what I was getting to. 
He proposed a system of four and later 12 branch reserve banks located in different sections of the country. Few people outside the banking world would realize that the existing concentration of the nation's money and credit structure in New York made the proposal of a regional reserve system a total delusion. Another proposal advanced by Paul Warburg at Jekyll Island was the manner of selection of administrators for the proposed regional reserve system. Senator Nelson Aldrich had insisted that the officials should be appointed, not elected, and that Congress should have no role in their selection. Warburg responded that the administrators of the proposed central bank should be subject to executive approval by the president. This patent removal of the system from congressional control meant that the Federal Reserve proposal was unconstitutional from its very inception because the Federal Reserve system was to be a bank of issue, which means it issues currency, prints dollars. Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 5 of the Constitution expressly charges Congress with the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Warburg's plan would deprive Congress of its sovereignty and the systems of checks and balances of power set up by Thomas Jefferson and the Constitution would now be destroyed. Administrators of the proposed system would control the nation's money and credit and would themselves be approved by the Executive Department of the Government. Or Paul Warburg later wrote a massive exposition of his plan, the Federal Reserve System, its origin and growth. Some 1,750 pages, but the name Jekyll Island appears nowhere in the text. He does state that this quote, but then the conference closed after a week of earnest deliberation. The rough draft of what later became the Aldrich Bill had been agreed upon and a plan had been outlined which provided for a National Reserve Association, meaning a central reserve organization with an elastic note issue based on gold and commercial paper. On page 60, Warburg writes, the results of the conference were entirely confidential. Even the fact that there had been a meeting was not permitted to become public. He adds in a footnote, Though 18 years have since gone by, I do not feel free to give a description of this most interesting conference concerning which Senator Aldrich pledged all participants to secrecy. And let's see, what year is this B.C. Forbes' revelation of the secret expedition to Jekyll Island? It had surprisingly little impact, and it did not appear in print until two years after the Federal Reserve Act had been passed by Congress. Hence, it was never read during the period when it could have had an effect, that is, during the congressional debate on the bill. Still, this this whole Jekyll Island thing is often regarded as a myth by mainstream media, despite things like, uh, here's here's another quote, I got like one minute left. As we have noted, Warburg's massive and supposedly definitive work on the Federal Reserve System does not mention Jekyll Island at all, although he does admit that a conference took place and none of his voluminous speeches do the words Jekyll Island appear with a notable exception. He agreed to Professor Stevenson's request that he prepare a brief statement. I better cut it short. 
page 485 of the Warburg Memorandum. In this excerpt, Warburg himself, Paul Warburg, says, the matter of a uniform discount rate was discussed and settled at Jekyll Island. Renegade Broadcasting, are we out? I think we're out. Kick ass, y'all. Need cash? Sick of waiting tables? Here at the Juletard School of Drama, we can make all your hoax and dreams come true. Sign up for our 33-week course and we will teach you how to laugh mid-sentence when describing how your friend was blown into six million pieces, how to move too soon before any shots or explosions are even heard, the lost art of driving into people but having your truck stay nice and clean, the correct posture when crouching over a dummy so your ID card doesn't cause an X strain. Sign up today and we guarantee weekly acting jobs with the CIA, FEMA, MI5, even Mossad. Scholarships and bursaries available for war veteran amputees and illegal immigrants. Gilletard School of Drama. We even supply the tomato sauce and dead chickens. Just as well I'm not the one who caused the storm of fire Or I would turn this battle plane into your funeral pyre The priests all say I must not hate But I will not pretend I saw the wreck you made of her My herald and my friend The scars you left in flesh and soul Will be so slow to fade Oh, would I had your coward heart Beneath my naked blade 